Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Hello, my name is Elliot, and you are listening to the North American Waterfowler podcast. I have Douglas Spala. There you go. Paula. There we go. I got it. I used the mnemonic device. In teaching, that's called a mnemonic device. I used it. Thank you. So this is his part two with Douglas on here, and I had scheduled him to come and be a guest, and we went down long rabbit trails with upland hunting, which is, if I'm being honest, I've got to do some more upland hunting. And I may actually lean on you to say, hey, please, can I come sometime? <laughs> See if you allow me to tag along at some point in my life, because I, I really want to get back back into it. So, Douglas, for people that only listen to this episode and not the last, give a quick rundown of who you are, where people can find you, um, your job, and then we'll jump right into it. Yeah. My name is Douglas Spala. I'm based here in Kansas, outside Kansas City area. Um, I'm a core, I'm an attorney for the Corps of Engineers. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram at my handle, Shunka Awar, which is lowercase S-U-N-K-A underscore O underscore war, W-A-R. And that was the name of my last lab that I had, Shunka. And we are going to get into why Douglas chose those names for the dogs, the origin of them kind of towards the end, <clears throat> excuse me, of this podcast. And if you missed the first one, we talked, like I said, a lot about Upland, a lot about prairie chickens, a lot about dogs and, and testing. So I do want to, one more thing on the dogs. When, when did you say your, cause your dog both. So you have two dogs right now, not three, two. Two, yep. And both of them are at, at trainers right now, but separate trainers. No, my lab is off at the trainer. My setter is home, but she leaves okay. this weekend to go up to the prairies to run horseback. So she will leave for probably a few months now. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go okay, follow horseback. that. Yeah, you yeah. gotta flush that out. Run horseback. We're back in the oh. one. Here we go. <laughs> okay. So, like I said, these these pointers, they run really big. And the best way to really figure out how to stretch them out and see what kind of work they have is they run them off horseback. Instead of walking, you're riding a horse following them. There's a whole training process that goes behind that. And there also is a field trial game called the horseback field trials, which is huh. all age and shooting dog. And if you've never been to one of those or you've never watched a dog from horseback, it is unbelievable. And if I can't get you to do that this year, then I'm failing as an uplender for you. <laughs> it is when you watch a dog roll out there five, six, seven hundred thousand yards and take take a cast, so a big swing at a thousand yards and you're on horseback, and you see that dog point and you get on that horse and ride up there. It is it is I think I might be sweating thinking about it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> there's gotta be some YouTube videos of this somewhere. Yeah, there's, there's not good be. ones. That's why I was like, I'm gonna make some good ones. Cause I wanna yeah. I wanna use a nice camera and show someone riding up on the prairie to a big group of chickens with a dog on point and a horseback. And it's just, there's like part cowboy there with those horseback stuff. Right. It's, ah, it's really well, that cool. That sounds cool. All right, all right. <laughs> Enough with that. Now you were the center <laughs> of a video production, right? Correct. And yeah. T t tell everyone where they can see that. Cause I watched it. It was fantastic. I'd like to watch it again and show it to my wife. 
um because it was really cool tell us about where people can see that and kind of what it was and yeah so that film was called ripples and it's on pheasants forever's youtube page and on their landing page pheasantsforever.com slash ripples and that was a story about a guy eric he's a he's a famous photographer and videographer and he had adopted this son casa from ethiopia he had met him on a trip and him and his wife decided at the time he wanted to adopt them and Eric is a white guy and his son's black and they live in central South central Montana. And he, he likes to hunt and fish and he does all this really rad stuff. And he was, was asking someone on a podcast, I'd love to find a mentor for my son, just someone that looks like him. Just, just so he knows that if he wants to grow up and hunt, that there's people out there that look like him just because people need those mirror figures when you just idolize what you want to do in the future. And I listened to that and I was like, huh, I'm black, my parents are white, I'm adopted, and I've spent my entire life hunting birds. <laughs> Who would like, be a better mentor? <laughs> I was like, you know what? If I can do that, if I can be a mentor for that child, I, I think I've served a vital purpose in my life. So I reached out to him, and he got back to me, and he wrote an article with Pheasants Forever, and they're like, we want to meet this Douglas guy. And I met with Pheasants Forever, and then we found some synergy with the legal side, and then I came on the board of directors, and then we made that film, and it was like you and your dad. I told you, I like you and your dad's balance. So me and my father drove out to Montana, met Eric and his son, and had this really cool experience. And it was part of it's like super emotional because it's like looking – back in time in real life. Like yeah. my father and I are looking at this younger version of us in Montana yeah. and they're just getting started hunting. And we've been doing this for a while and it was so cool. And there's even a point in that film where little Casa is kind of sad and crying a little bit because the hunting is not going the way he wanted. And Eric mm -hmm. kind of nestles him and you don't see on the film, but in that moment, I look at my dad and he kind of shakes his head because that was us at one yeah. time where I would maybe get mad or frustrated that I missed a bird or something. And right. it was just, it, I, that was a surreal feeling. And Eric has become a great family friend. And I went out and saw Casa and his other son, Henry, and them last year, hope to do it again. And it's like, that is part of what hunting in this culture is, is like giving back and showing that next generation right. you know, what to do out there. And it was just a, Super fun film. And part of it in the opening scene, they do a, we do a waterfowl hunt on the Platte River. So you kind of mm -hmm. get to see what we grew up doing with that yeah. waterfowl stuff. So was, I got to rewatch cool that. I, I remember it touched me uh, deeply. I got to go back and watch it. If you guys want to see it, it's called Ripples. You can find it on the Pheasants Forever YouTube channel. And it's really high. It's, it's a high quality production. Um, it's. Yeah. Great. Eric is a great filmmaker. He's got an assistant Jasper. that's really good. And then, the music guy was a guy that does films for Yeti. So that music is just yeah. on point. It's <laughs> yeah. just like a lot of that, that. I don't know what it's called. Process went into yeah. making that film so good. And then you got Montana in the background. It's like, how can you not love these landscapes? What an honor that must have been to be a part of that. I mean, just for you, your dad, for the family you were going to see. I mean, that just kind of encapsulates in time. What, what a cool, cool production that had to be for you guys. Yeah, it was. And that just sharing, and even if you and your dad saw a younger father-son combo, or maybe you even see you and your own son doing it, you're just like, the, your circle is like complete for a moment. And it's just really yeah. cool to have that feeling. Yeah. You know, my, my videos are certainly not high production, but the, the whole reason why I started them was just to preserve those memories. And so, I mean, you know, my dad can, is still going to get out there hunting with us this year but not as much as he used to, but he's got all those videos. And mom was like, he watches those videos all the time. And we've got the last eight years, every hunt for the last eight years we've got. It's endless. Yeah. By the time you end up watching them all, you don't a camera remember. Too. What's I that? I picked up a camera too, to start taking some pictures. And yeah. that film is, you know, I just got married and hopefully I'll be blessed with children one day. And my father's a lot older than I am. So one day, hopefully I can show my children like this was, this yeah. was grandpa. Right. 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 Very cool. Let's make a jump over to your role with the army corps I, I have for some reason i feel like i've got so many questions to ask but i really struggled to come up with the right questions to ask in in preparation for this so if if you think there's anything interesting that i'm not asking feel free 
to to jump in on this conversation. So talk about how did you get involved um, as becoming, well, what is your role with the Army Corps? How did you get involved with it? And if anything you know about the history of specifically the reservoirs, if you could share that with us. Yeah. So I'm an attorney again for the Corps of Engineers. I do real estate here in the Kansas City area. It's called the Kansas City District. So it touches parts of Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, and Missouri. They're broken up by watersheds. If there's a map, you can kind of tell which district is what. It's kind of a funny story. So my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, she was from Topeka, and she basically got to the point in our relationship where she's like, hey, I'm moving to Kansas City. You either come with me or we're breaking up. <laughs> I love I love my job in Chicago at my fancy law firm. I don't know if I can do that. And what law were and you doing that, at that time when you're in Chicago? Real estate law too for, okay, just for not a firm in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. But my parents had gone through that flood of 2019 and they kind of got trapped in Fremont. And there's all that flooding around here. And the Corps of Engineers did a great job rectifying a bunch of that stuff. And when I looked at jobs in Kansas City, there's a real estate job open for the Corps. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to apply for that one and see if I can, my skills will translate over and they have, it's been, it's been great to really do that and get involved. So that's kind of how that job process went. Mm -hmm. And now what I do is I do the real estate for and the Corps of Engineers has like a military mission and a civil mission. So I just think the military installations by use like Fort Riley and Fort Leavenworth, Fort Leonard Wood. You know, there's stuff, that, real estate stuff and engineering stuff that goes on out there. And then there's a civil side, which you can think like environmental cleanups, the rivers, and the ones you like to talk about is the reservoirs, which are the flood mm -hmm. control projects. And then I do the real estate out there. So that's anything from looking at a contract to helping develop and grow those properties or just helping to install new structures. So what, what would be your involvement? Now, when you say the rivers, I'm assuming you're talking about like the Kansas and the Missouri River? Correct. And those are considered navigable bodies of water, which are regulated pursuant to constitutional and congressional authority. I don't mean to legalize, but there's a certain bo certain list of rivers in the United States that the federal government regulates. And mm -hmm. that's for navigation. So, moving so what is the, the core? What's the core and your involvement when it would come to be like with the Kansas River? So the big thing is like fortifying that river to prevent floods would be the, the main purpose. And then there's other ancillary purposes like recreation, conservation mm -hmm. of wildlife and stuff like that. But the main thing is flood control and fortifying those rivers. And that's what the reservoirs are for. Those are flood control structures to help offset the river's functions, the way the river moves and flows. Right. When was the inception of, and, and if you don't know some of this, I know you're not a historian, but you obviously are going to know way more than I do. And, and I've, the reservoirs are a big part of Kansans' lives because we don't have a lot of recreational water mm -hmm. in, in Kansas. Our rivers are all muddy. Our small creeks are all muddy. You can't even be on them. Like Missouri has all this clear water. And, and so if you're going to have water recreation in Kansas, it's going to be on, on a reservoir most likely. Even, even the Kansas River is way underutilized for recreation. It's a great recreation river, and people just don't use it for some reason. So give us anything you know about the history and, and the inception of the reservoir system. Yeah, so those start around, I think, the 20s. Now, the Corps of Engineers starts at like 1775 with George Washington. It goes really? all the way back to the beginning. But the Kansas reservoirs, and we'll just stick with that, I think are around like the 1920s up until about the 1960s, where Congress was authorizing these water resource development acts to fortify those rivers and then build these flood control structures. And I do a lot with like kind of some of the easements and leases on the outer parts of those big reservoirs. So I look at some of those documents and there's stuff from the 20s where they went out and bought a bunch of property or condemned a bunch of property. There's stuff from the 40s, the 50s and 60s. So that kind of time period is when all of them were basically erected and then have been managed to the present and will continue to be managed in the future. What flooding issues were they having? Was it clear down the Mississippi or was it local flooding? Yeah, Mississippi, Missouri is a big one that impacts a lot of stuff. And that's why you see a lot of them kind of east and west of the Missouri, the Kansas River, the same thing. And then there's also like the Arkansas and Colorado on the other southern mm -hmm. portions of the state. Those are outside my boundary but right so how how did they have to just go and i think it's called eminent domain where they just tell people hey beat it yep 
Yeah, and that comes from Congress, so there's nothing you can really do about it at that time. And I've seen those condemnation proceedings, which are that you just go into court and file, say, Congress has taken this, here's what we're going to pay you. And this is just oversimplifying it. Right. And this will now be the federal government's, which is a, a, an interesting thing, because I'm sure there's a lot of angry people at that time. But remember, there's that happened to another group of people a little bit before that, too. So <laughs> Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the reservoirs were, I, be, if, I believe the most, the last one they did was Hillsdale. And I think that was in the early eighties. Okay. If I'm, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I have um, 18 so, of them in my area. So I, it's tough to know all of them right off the top of my bed, right. my head, but yeah. I, I just can't imagine that Kansans from, well, you said the first one was around the twenties. So for 60 years, just commonly because there's reservoirs i don't know how many we have in the state but you don't have to drive very far between them i mean there's a lot yeah. of them there's a lot of them i can't imagine that there wasn't just huge civil unrest about the government kicking so many people off their land yeah and if you think maybe even the and i don't know kansas history that well but i imagine in like the 30s 40s and 50s like where wilson lake is and where mm -hmm. canopolis is i, mm -hmm. I don't Imagine there's that many people, but when you think like Perry, right. Tuttle, maybe even like Melvern, or on the Missouri side, Palmy, Smithville, mm -hmm. yeah, there there was probably some upset people at that time. And I've seen them. People tried to hold out, but when Congress says they're coming in to buy the property for the general <laughs> public, there's there's not much anyone can ever do. Yeah, sit in your house until you're 20 feet underwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You, so it's like, you don't want it? Well, good luck getting flooded. Then you know yeah. it's your own fault. <laughs> you can't so get flood insurance. So would there be either. houses under all those lakes and places? Surely there would be, wouldn't there? Well, I imagine what they would have done, and I don't know much about the construction and engineering side. That's kind of over my head. Mm -hmm. But I imagine they just raised the land and then dug everything out and used a bunch of that material to build some levees. Okay. I, Or to build the dam itself, because each one of them has a big dam. Yeah. And so they're probably digging out in front of the dam to build the dam, right? That's why yeah. it's so deep around the yeah. dams. And you look at those dams and they're pretty substantial structures. You drive over them. It takes you a while to drive across one of them. I have been told, and I've done some digging and I can't find anyone that seems to know about this, but I have been told that those, the lifespan of those dams is estimated to be about a hundred years. Uh, and there's actually been some reservoirs that they've returned back to the natural state in North America. There's been... Hmm quite a few reservoirs that they've turned back into natural state and that the core within the next 50 years is going to have a huge problem on their hands as far as what to do with these structures, whether they totally rebuild them or turn them back in or, or uh, have you heard anything like about that? No, but it, I mean, that's a lifespan for one of those structures, a hundred years. Again, I'm not an engineer whatsoever, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't down, doesn't sound crazy. I mean, those, yeah, they'd serve a vital purpose and there's a lot of water pressure next to them. I mean, it's, I think a hundred years, if you say I'm going to build this in 1940 and it's going to last till 2040, I think that's pretty good engineering. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. Because water likes to seep through things. Yeah. <laughs> water I, would imagine, finds a way. yeah. I would imagine if that's the case, eventually you'll start seeing new word of funding and stuff to do repurpose those or rebuild them or do something else. Because remember, you're, the people who pass that congressional legislation to get those are your senators and your congressmen. They're not going to just let everyone suffer in the state of Kansas. They won't have any constituents or they won't be in office. Right. So this was a massive plan by the U.S. government at some point all over the nation to were to control flooding nationwide. What what a massive scale project that was! Yeah, and there's a, quite a few. And that's what makes the Corps such an impressive enterprise. Its ability to go out there and plan these things and execute on them. You can look at history and see how destructive. I guess you could say destructive. Just the natural habit. Uh, behavior of the Missouri River. And that thing would flood for miles in each direction. And there's nothing you could do to control it. And yeah. it's like, you want to buy farmland next to it? I mean, you could sit underwater for a couple of years, but but for yeah. the Corps to, re, to fortify those, we, we don't have as much. And it still floods and people get upset and it happens, but those are considered those 100-year flood events, 500-year flood events. Yeah, <laughs> There's nothing you can do to predict those. They just happen. Yeah. It does sadden me. We live, I live within almost eye shot of the Missouri river and you can see the Missouri river 
basin area where you can imagine what that river looked like before all the channelization of it three, four hundred yeah. years ago. It had to be a spectacular place. And it's not now that it's channelized. I mean, and it just saddens me to look at that and daydream what a wildlife paradise that whole Missouri River used to be. And I, I wish that I wish there was some reason that it didn't have to be have to be done. Chan the channelization of it. I think that's the navigation. Just you think about where people live, and especially in our prairie states is Omaha, Kansas City, parts of Oklahoma. I mean, they're all off major river corridors because of right. shipping yep. and barge traffic. And But a cool thing is, so there is programs now. MRP is one of them, Missouri Rec Recovery Restoration Program. I don't know, a lot of, of those in the, in the Army that does go out and build habitat up on next to those rivers. If you go up from here to Omaha and you look, follow I-80 and you look, or what's that, I-20, going north, you look on both sides where that flooded in 2019, there's great mm -hmm. habitat on each side of those. And you right. look at the Onyx map and you see all those core properties, that's pretty good hunting land for upland waterfowl and big game. It's, it's cool how that river can really contribute to positive habitat. You're right. right. I've noticed up and down because I've used Onyx and and ex looked fairly extensively up and down um, the Missouri River, and I see land that's government owned, and I think it's core ground, but mm -hmm. I can't quite figure out what the logistics are as far as hunting on them. So it would be if it's core ground, it's usually open to public recreation, which and then public hunting, and then what would happen is the state regulations where that land is. So that like niche Nabotna area up in Northwest Missouri is kind of weird. Cause there's that little like fist that goes like, it looks like it's in Missouri, but it's really Nebraska. Right. Yes. Aside, aside from that, the, where that's, where that core land is, is subject to the state regulation. So if it's on that East side of Missouri, it's Missouri, unless it's North, it's in Iowa. If it's West, mm -hmm. it's in Nebraska and Southwest it's in Kansas. Does, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was also told about the reservoirs that, cause there's a, as water flows through silt builds up and that the silt is becoming more and more of a problem and that the plans would be as the silt, as the silt builds up to the point where, um, it becomes a serious issue that their plan contingency plan would be just to hold up to 20 feet more water in each reservoir as a as a way of dealing with the silt. And I don't know if you, if you no. have heard anything like that or I could speak to it. I, I just yeah. offhand heard it. Remember it's a huge enterprise. So like some of those right. things, like that's kind of an operations management, maybe even some hydrology stuff. And that's like, I'm a real right. estate attorney. That's just way <laughs> right, right. outside. And then silt is like ecosystem environmental it's just yeah. like way outside of my scope <laughs> yeah well in that same conversation we were having it came up about kansas really struggles with the amount of public land that we have for hunters especially waterfowl land i mean we've got this and we're going to go into this and everyone's waiting to hear a lawyer's perspective on the new kansas regulations which I, i'm sure you're thrilled Proposed regulations, Remember the proposed well, mean things. On, yeah, <laughs> on the seventeenth, it's going to be the new regulations. There's, they're yeah. not voting that down, um, at least in my opinion. But before we, before we do get into that, um, the conversation I was having turned into one frustrating thing about the core, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying that as a duck hunter's perspective is that they, their job is not to worry about duck hunting, obviously. Their job is to regulate water. Although if they were to consider water levels as it regards to waterfowl hunting a little bit more, we could add many, many more huntable acres to the state for public, public land hunters if they were a little thoughtful about water levels. Hmm. Um, because it just doesn't seem that the managers of the core, that's not their job. Their job is not to worry about duck hunting. And so uh, the, none of their decisions seem to be revolved around um, hunting, which maybe if they were, it would be, it would deal with some of our pressure problems. Yeah. And so like each of those dam structures has a, a series of 
priority or series of responsibilities. And that's like flood control management, navigation, water supply, where people have to water their cattle and do all the irrigation, hydropower at some dams. It's like environmental, wildlife conservation, mm-hmm. and recreation, which is two, those two are different too. So that, what is that like six or seven different things you have to manage? Right. So like there is just give and take. But Douglas, For I that, only care about duck hunting. It's, it's about me. It's about, it's about me. <laughs> I'm just framing this. Yeah. But, but when we think about, and this is just me saying this, not the Corps of Engineers, waterfowl hunting, a lot of those lands are managed by the state. So in Kansas, it's Kansas Department of Wildlife. And they're tasked with that responsibility to provide suitable hunting. And I think that's part of their mission is to provide suitable hunting opportunities for residents and non-residents throughout those managed lands. And they have their own managed lands too, but I think that's their part. And I, some of those core lakes are big, right? They're 16,000 plus acres. They're, they're, they right. can do a lot of waterfowl hunting out there. I think yeah. there is nice that there is some kind of refuges out there too, because you need a staging area for those birds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm always watching the water levels and it's like, man, if I could just be in control of, <laughs> of those, like, okay, guys, now we're going to hold water for a while. All right, guys, now, because, you know, I, I would do a great job of, of that. And, and <laughs> you understand high like high. hydrology and everything oh, yeah. too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the flows and everything. I do. <laughs> by, by night, by nature, I do. <laughs> But, um, you know, on that big, I think it was 19, you mentioned the flood of 19. It's where the, uh, some of the reservoirs you and I both frequent were over 20 feet high and they held water in there for six months. Yeah. And the result was they killed so many trees up, up and down the river channels. And I'm not blaming them. I know I'm not, I'm not, I don't know why they had to do it. I'm sure they had good reason to do it. But it sure is unfortunate when when you see things like that happen. You're like, man, if they just could have let out ten feet of water, uh, you know, and saved all. Now we've got just trees collapsing all and up and down the rivers because they they held that they held that flood for six months. It was like I think they finally were able to release water like late October, mid November. It was literally six months. Um, do you have any idea of? the decision-making to let out water and how that, how that, I know it involves the Mississippi river. Yeah. And I wasn't here at that time. I was still in my fancy Chicago life. Um, Mm. (laughs) But uh, remember that, that the way that Missouri river goes, it starts way up North. So Mm -hmm. every, so that that's kind of the misconception that when you think stuff impacts you here in Kansas and then it's like in a vacuum and it's not because everything North and everything South of you, is going to be impacted by actions that happen upstream, right? So if you are holding water in Kansas, it's likely that there's issues down south of you that they need to hold water. If they don't, everything south of you is going to have a bunch more problems. If you hold water in South Dakota, it's because you're trying to take care of Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Mm. Arkansas, Louisiana. And you got to understand that impact of it. And I don't know exactly why they're holding it so long. I know there was a lot of flooding for a long time, especially up in Nebraska where my parents are from. It was it yeah. was really bad. They were stuck in their house for a whole week because they're, Fremont's kind of in an island surrounded by the river. So it yeah. was it was tough. But I know right. it was really bad for a lot of people. And I, I don't know the policy reasons why. And part of that I just never will understand because that's, that, that's not work that I do. Right. And again, I, I am not crit- critical of them because I understand it's a complex job. It's just questions that, that you that that you wonder about when it affects the one thing you care about. But yeah. I understand the global picture. Last year, the water levels on one particular lake were just perfect, right? Going into teal season. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were absolutely perfect. And that was when the Mississippi was hurting so bad on water. So a week before teal season, there were several <laughs> lakes they commissioned to dump a bunch of water out. The lakes dropped like three or four feet and never regained the whole year. And it, I mean, the impact on our waterfowl hunting at those complexes was, was great for sure. Um, and I'm sure the rancher would be opposed to most of your waterfowl places holding water. Cause they want to go out there and 
you know, water their cattle or the farmer wants to right. say, no, 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 we need the water out here. And yeah. that's, that's a big, and it, it, it impacts us here in Kansas, but it's more in the West. And you can read about that all the time, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, mm-hmm. how much water is the new gold. And that's important for so many things, not just us waterfowlers. Right. Well, they've been saying for, I don't know how many years, a couple of decades that the aquifer in Western Kansas is going to get to the point where they can't even farm that that's been their predictions. Yeah. In fact, there've been people trying to talk into turning it back into like a prairie reservation kind of that, because they're saying that the, the aquifer is going to become so depleted because of um, the use of the water through irrigation that yeah. they're, it's not going to be sustainable anymore for farmers, which it hasn't happened, but I know they certainly have been water is, and there's all the, do you know anything about the water rights fights with Colorado and um, the water that comes into Nebraska and Kansas? Well, I think a lot of it comes, so not really, no, I, I don't really know much about it. It's like, I just know that Nebraska has that really nice aquifer and everyone wants to draw from it. And <laughs> yeah. And there's part of that water battles. that comes out of the North Platte that comes to Nebraska, Colorado wants to stop and keep yeah. it in Colorado. But you look at that East side there, Denver, Fort Collins, all that, that population is exploding and just with all those people, they need water. And you think, is right. there anyone in Western Nebraska? And I say, yeah, there's good people out there, yeah. but how much water do they need? Yeah. Not many people out there. That population <laughs> density is low. Yeah. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Okay, um, let's. I'm sure everyone wants us to jump into the let's proposed... Do Kansas yeah. regulations. So you being a lawyer for the core, you're um, speak to the legal aspects of it. And I also want you to speak to your personal opinion aside from your job, your personal opinion on, on the regulations. And then I yeah. want to follow up with anything, you know, about the course stance. Yeah. I don't, okay, just off the bat. I don't think the core really has a stance on this one. Particularly, I haven't seen anything from our public affairs like taking a stance on this regulation, mostly because it's proposed. So mm-hmm. it, it would be the, the government doesn't really act preemptively like that. It, it just doesn't make sense the way they function. Um, but the legality of it is what's going to happen is Kansas is looking to regulate non-resident waterfowlers, which the state of Kansas has the ability to regulate hunting within its boundaries. That's that's within its own authority. Every state can do it and every state does it a little differently. The interesting situation here is that Kansas has so much public opportunities on federal property. And this is when my personal aspect will come into it. So if Kansas is choosing to regulate non-resident hunting on, it looks to be state owned lands and possibly managed lands, mm-hmm. which would be Portions that Kansas leases out, which would include portions that Kansas leases out to the core. However, that wouldn't include portions of those reservoirs that Kansas doesn't lease out. So I think by like the big lake areas a lot. Yeah, the big lake. So that's why you can still run the boat on the water and stuff as long as the core allows you to hunt on it. But I think there's a couple lake projects that don't have any Kansas leased areas, which would leave that whole core project open up to non-resident hunters throughout the entire season. I, mean, I don't know how they'll incorporate that into their regulations. That's always just, that's just a, me looking at their rules and trying to decipher it. Yeah. And just to reiterate, the court doesn't really have a position that I'm aware of. I think that if they would, I, I would direct you to the public affairs for the Kansas city district. And there's also the Tulsa district in Kansas, but I understand what they're trying to do. I mean, it is, you know, it's a, Kansas resident, there's if you're trying to help out your constituents, that's your job. And is this right. the right thing to do? I, I don't know. We'll see. I think time will tell on that one. 
But it so just if you had a yes/no vote on these regulations, what would you hit? Yes or no? Oh man, I'd just say no because I like. I mean, if there's competition, that's fine. Yeah, I, I mean, the lake projects are busy here. But I lived when I lived in Chicago. I'd go to a boat ramp where there's 24 blinds to draw from, and there's 120 boats. Right, that's competition here. Right. I mean, have you ever seen 120 boats at a boat ramp here? No, not even close. Maybe I've never been to Cheyenne when it's really busy, but like, how many days of the year is it that busy? Right. So if, if a father and a son or a group of friends wants to come out hunt for a week, so be it. Yeah. But, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface that with saying that I travel a lot to hunt too. So there's only so many days I spend hunting here, but yeah, I don't know. I like meeting those out of state people at a boat ramp or at a marsh. Sometimes they'll invite you down to a place in Arkansas or West Tennessee or something. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I think it's better to have more people hunting and caring about the sport than less. That's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And I don't know if this really helps bring in more people. So the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks has publicly stated at the first time they workshopped this, that they were proposing these regulations that, that uh, non-residents can only hunt on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday on Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks land. They, they, made they basically said they thought they could get done and they could get it done on core land. And they said that they thought that the federal level was, we don't have really that many complexes that are federal, but we have, we have some that they implied that they could get that done as well. So in your opinion, whether it be personal or, or legal when it's all said and done, because are you of the opinion that they're going to pass this thing on the 17th? Yeah, it looks, it looks like it. Right. Uh, to, to answer your question, I, I don't see a way in which a state government can regulate federal action. That's just an objective legal opinion. It's just That's not how so federal sovereignty works. It's the states can't dictate federal action. And I don't know if the Corps or the Bureau of Rec or anyone has the enforcement ability to really do that to enforce and check. We, like I said, we have eight other priorities at those lake projects. I don't right. think there's the ability to, to, to regulate that, nor is there a willingness to, because it's, it's not Kansas land that we're regulating. That'd be core land, which is different. It comes under different right. regulations. Yeah. So this is my opinion. You tell me if you agree that on the 17th of August, they will pass the regulation to go into effect in 24 that non-resident hunters cannot hunt on Kansas Department Wildlife and Park land except for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, but that will not include the core ground and it will not include federal ground. Yes, I, I would. I, was that a yes or no question? Yes. Do you agree? Yeah, that, yeah, that's what yeah. I think is going to yeah. take place. And it sounds like you agree with that. Yeah, and, but we're, there's a nuance to this one, though. Yes, I agree with you. However, if the core ground is leased out, and this is what I haven't seen in a regulation yet that I'd like to see, if the core ground is, let's just say Hillsdale, if that land is leased out to Kansas Department of Wildlife, I don't know if that would be subject to it or not. Because it sounds to me like they're saying everything owned. Well, they don't own that core ground. They just lease it. That's like oh, an wow. apartment. That's that one, would be that's, the, so that would be all of the marshes they manage on the reservoirs. Yeah. So they which is to, almost all of the duck hunting in Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> oh my lord. That would basically be like okay, Cheyenne Bottoms. Uh, no, no, Wetland. Cheyenne, no, I mean this Cheyenne, would this is yeah. what would be not oh, huntable oh, yeah. by non-residents. Yeah. Cheyenne Bottoms, Mac Wetland, Jamestown, Neosho, anything attached around a reservoir is not owned by the state. Mm -hmm. So if, if that comes to fruition, that the only thing that they regulate are what is owned, that's going to be a tiny percentage of the, of the wetland marshes in Kansas. Yeah. They'll need to differentiate between owned and whether they talk about lease stuff. Maybe we just let the cat out of the bag. I don't know, but I'm sure every lawyer that looks at this or every person that reads it understands there's a difference between owning a home and leasing a home and yeah. whether or not you can control who goes in and out of it. So when you, when you mentioned that off air, I didn't put that together in my mind. If that's all they get done, that's going to, that's going to be a joke. 
Because <laughs> the vast majority of the waterfowl opportunities in wetland marshes that the state manages are around reservoirs. Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority of them. So maybe they intend to include what they lease out. I don't know. I'd, I've, I'd have to see the exact text, but that's a, that's a big difference between right. what the state of Kansas owns and what the state of Kansas leases. And now that's not saying they can't regulate what they lease, but the way they write it is important. It's one of those right. lawyer tricks, right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Anything else that, that you think that um, you'd like to talk about as far as I think one thing that you we've kind of talked about is just the drones out there Mm -hmm. and on Kansas. Yeah. You got to really be careful about using the drones on the core projects, especially going over those dams. That's prohibited disturbing wildlife and the camping grounds. Not good, but there are some places that you can get a permit to fly the drone. And then Kansas has its own regulations again on the stuff that it manages. Mm -hmm. So, which I think they say no drones to anything that they correct. Yeah. I don't think you're allowed to fly them at all on KDWP land. What if you're camping at a campsite on a reservoir or you're boating? Can you put it up over top of you? You're not supposed to because that's disturbing recreational purposes. So it's pretty much just outlawed for the most part. Yeah. But like on the river systems, you would be able to. It's a little more open, but I think you can get like a film permit. I know they've done some films at some of the lake projects, and I think mm. you can get a film permit to use a drone, which maybe for you that would be good to just get all your B-roll at one time and just get a permit. Yeah, that's not a bad idea, actually, because that, that's always, as far as the permit goes, um, and, and that's true, which we haven't even touched on the filming side of it, which you and I have talked about a little bit um, as far as whether it's legal to film on core ground in Kansas. And I think, honestly, from from what I can tell it's kind of the discretion of the individual core managers at each complex as to kind of how they feel. I've, I've had people um, talk to some that's like, well, you need to get a permit. I've talked to mm-hmm. some like, well, if you're just one guy with a video camera, throwing up a couple of YouTube, you know, I'm not worried about that at all, but if it's a film crew, so it's kind of nuanced even within um, the, the guys that are running each complex and how they, yeah. And that's also that like commercial purpose. So like, if you have a film crew, I mean, it's even like trying to get a, I've tried to get a, a photography permit at places in Kansas city. And they say, you need to get a permit like, for me, taking a picture of my dog sitting on a bench. Yeah. Like, right. Okay. I just will go somewhere else. It, it's all, it's all the, to stop like the, the prom scenes at different parks and then out there just, a right. film crew coming out with all their stuff and just filming everything. It just, it can create a hassle. I feel like a lot, and you may be able to speak to this better than, than me, but a lot of these regulations around filming, my perception is they're from like 30 years ago when they're talking about big sets coming in and yeah. setting up and disturbing things. They're not talking about the YouTube or the Instagram guy that has a little following that's coming in with his little one man crew. And so it's like a lot of this stuff needs to be rethought and, and updated. I feel like. I would agree. And some of you guys do a really good job of filming at the projects. And I can tell just because I've been to a lot of them, but I still have to struggle sometimes. and be like, what marsh is that? I know where he's at. And you guys do a really good job. And and to that that point, you can almost hide where you're at and not have anyone ever know that you're out at Perry or something because you guys do a really good job. Yeah. Well, my first year I was showing quite a bit because I didn't know anyone was watching. I was showing boat ramps. I was showing and yeah. I started having some people comment, oh, you're at blah, 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 blah. And, and I had one guy actually email me and kind of like, hey, man, listen. Uh, and that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got a little bit of a responsibility. And number one, I don't want to be pushing all this traffic where I go. So I have tried to definitely hide things. And the majority of the time now when people contact me and say, I know exactly where you were, I say, email me and let me know. I'd say 80, 90% of the time they're wrong. <laughs> it's it's harder to tell than yeah. you think it is. Um, Unless you really know those complexes because they're right. pretty big and you got to know every yeah. marsh. And, and I got to know what those plants and that water looks like sometimes week to week to be able to yeah. really see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And within marshes, uh, especially like you're more of your core kind of um, areas where the, the lake affects the water levels. They, it may look vastly different from one year to the next. You can go from smart weed to lily pads, to cattails, to ragweed. I mean, it can really, if you haven't to been corn. out there that year, 
Yeah. Right. And they'll just they plant corn or something in there. And it's really, it's right. crazy. And I'd, I'd really like that they do all that to really help the wildlife. Now you can always use more, but they do a good yeah. job at least having some suitable habitat out there and you can do pretty well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Kansas land managers for the K KDWP are fantastic. They're especially the ones that are duck hunters, but I even know some that aren't duck hunters that still do a really good job managing for waterfowl. They really are unsung heroes in my opinion. Yeah. For all the flack they're getting for the proposed regulation, I'm really satisfied with what they do with what they have. There's some really good waterfowl complexes out there and upland habitat that they've really done well with. It's And some of them yeah. are good with both, right? Some of those waterfowl places have a lot of pheasants at them. Yeah. And kudos to Pheasants for Forever because they are actively, in fact, my buddy Aiden, he works for Pheasants Forever at a, a complex in Kansas. Um, so they're actually hiring biologists to yeah. oversee it. So kudos to them because, I mean, they're actually bucking up and paying for salaries um, at different places. So I know that many complexes, I don't know how many complexes have a fe pheasants for forever um, hired. I think a few. A few. And then there's like just there's regional areas, too. And there's a statewide coordinator, too. So they can really hone in on some certain places as well. Yeah, right, right. Um, the last thing about reservoirs, what is the policy as far as I know what the policy for guiding on KDWP land is it's, it's outlawed, but what is it on reservoirs? Like, can you guide fishing trips, uh, hunting? You know, I've never asked that. I don't fish at all either. So I don't follow any fishing regulations, but okay. I, I would imagine it's probably the same with no guiding because it's federal. I have no idea though. I've never, I've never looked into that. I've, I don't know. It's not like a place where you'd really want to guide. It's not like, that right. great no <laughs> but no um yeah i don't know i have no idea i wonder because I, I know that I, I i think that they still guide for fishing but i know they outlawed it um for waterfowl hunting on state land but i was never quite sure how that worked yeah. for they have like fishing tournaments at some of those lake projects and stuff too and mm -hmm. some of those have the like the ones in the missouri have like musky and stuff in it and there's mm. there's some really good fishing at those some of those projects so why have you never gotten into fishing out of curiosity time you yeah. can only be good at so many things in life. <laughs> yeah. and life you start fishing and your whole summer is blown and <laughs> you just can't i don't right. golf either same reason i just summer's kind of my time to maintain yeah. my relationship with my wife that's that's important it sounds like you <laughs> travel a bunch to hunt yeah so i need to, these months to like you know make sure we're all good that's a smart man <laughs> that's a smart <laughs> man right there <laughs> The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, let's move into the last segment I wanted to talk about and let's start with your dog. So um, I didn't know this about you, but I was listening to your episode appearance on Duck Season Somewhere. You were talking about the hunting that you've done on the Native American reservations and how that obviously must play a big part into your life because you're seeing the names you pick for your dogs have Native American origin. And you on that podcast, you guys talked about it a little bit, but I was just kind of left with a lot of questions. So can how did 
you it come to pass that you were welcomed on reservations to hunt and what are your relationships and, and go down that trail for us. Yeah. So my father is really in tune with native American culture. And then one of his good family friends was a priest at the Winnebago tribe for a couple of decades, which is in North, which is in Nebraska. And then as a child, and as I've grown up, I've gone to various reservations and made friends with some of the tribal members and hunted out there. Cause there can be some pretty good hunting. And that was through the contact of your father's friend. Yep. And then in my, later in my life, I've made my own. I did some consulting for a Native American law firm, too, based out of Omaha. Um, and because of those experiences when I was a boy and still today, I make it a point to name each one of my dogs with a tribal name as a way to kind of show respect for those tribes and to breathe life into that language that's been lost You know, we've over, over the history of America. We've you know, done some unfortunate things to many of those tribes, especially in the places that we call home. And this is my way of just kind of honoring, honoring them and showing that respect, but also carry on that tradition that my father said about valuing this country's original conservationists, which are the Native Americans. And so how old were you when you first started spending any time at all um, oh, on I, my first powwow was when I was in the single digits. I, it was, it started really young and powwows are those dance ceremonies in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, going out to Wyoming and Western Nebraska, that started really, really young. So that's native American culture has been a big part of my decision-making throughout my life. That's one of the reasons why I got into real estate law is just to really understand land use practices and real estate regulations, and tribal sovereignty and how, their land rights have been impacted. It's just a really big part of who I am. So you guys were going in and spending quite a bit of time. I mean, you must have been really welcome with open arms to be going to powwows. And I, I'm completely foreign to it. I don't know how that works in the modern day, whether they uh, view it where anyone can come and join yeah. in their cultural things or whether you have to be kind of asked in. I think it depends on the tribe. Each tribe's different. There's like 460 plus different tribes in the United States and each of them right. is a little different, but the ones I know are the prairie ones. And for the most part, they're pretty welcoming of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't, like I said, on the other one, they, there's a lot of lack of economic opportunity and drug and alcohol abuse, but they, they still find so much joy in life and they're really welcoming to people on the outside who really take the time to get to know, get to know them, right. get to know their culture. And I think, naming the dogs that way. When I go to a different res and I say, oh, that's Shunka or Kuto or Da'a, one of them, they just kind of brighten up and say, oh yeah, he, right. he understands at least part of what this tribal culture is. Well, each tribe's mm -hmm. different, but from tribe to tribe, they at least know each other and know that someone out there respects that. And the dog kennels on my truck have their names on it. And I just, it's just a good way to um, commemorate them. Yeah. And that's kind of like that prairie, prairie chicken thing, right? I would imagine yeah. seeing a bunch of bison and a bunch of prairie chickens getting up would be a really cool thing. Oh, wouldn't it? The, the thing about the history of Kansas and all, all of the plains is such a fascinating history that one of the things that grabs me about it is it's so young. Mm -hmm. I mean, here we are, we're only, they were still dealing with issues with Native Americans in Kansas, like in the 1860s, a little bit in the 1870s, um, where they, it was, I mean, that's only like 150 years ago. Yeah. And that's like the Buffalo soldiers. So that's those black right. regiments out at Fort Leavenworth that were moving them out and moving them south. Yeah. I mean, 150 years is absolutely nothing. So if you're out, that's one thing I love about Kansas. The, the beauty and majesty of Kansas has been lost because of agricultural and fences. But when you're out there, especially like in the grass hills, you can look at and close your eyes and imagine it. You can still yeah. see it. And and it had a vastness to it. You know, when you first see the mountains, there's this feeling of vastness. And you get that in the sandhills. The sandhills would be a great example. The sandhills, it has a majestic um, vastness to it when you look out into it. In Kansas, there's places that you can see it. You get into the Flint Hills. You yeah. can still – but Kansas in general – it has a lot of hills and a lot of rolling hills. Kansas is not, you have to get way out West for those of you that don't know Kansas for it to be just flat, flat, flat. A lot of Kansas is rolling hills. And when you get out into it, you can imagine the vastness 
yeah, the call buffalo. It, I say the vast, the vast grasslands and dominating skies. But you stand on one of those hilltops in the Flint Hills or the Smoky Hills or the Sand Hills, right. and you just see that sky open up, and you're in. You can squint and think for a moment what it would be like to be here 150 years ago and what this place would look like. Then you drive a little bit and you see a interstate, but you know you have those moments where you or can a windmill just, or a windmill, and you just imagine that beauty. And I think that's what yeah. makes us prairie people just so connected is, is, is that love for that vastness. Yeah. Right. So the, the tribal areas you go into um, with the hunting, how, what, how are the regulations affected today? Because I, I, I played baseball with a guy that was, um, I'm I'm scared of getting terminology wrong as I as I try to say these things because I don't know the proper terminology for things, but he was in some tribe and he was a certain percentage of mm. uh, Native American and he was telling me if you're a certain percentage then you still hold some hunting rights where laws don't apply to you. How how do all of the regulations of hunting and fishing work on on those tribes? Yeah, so so generally, just general understanding is when those tribes entered in treaties with the federal government. They preserved certain rights to, to continue to just keep hold of that cultural identity. And part of that is the ability to hunt and fish freely. And then the way that interacts with state law and sovereignty, so their ability to govern themselves, is tribal members that are part of that tribe on that role have an individual right to hunt on tribal lands free from state regulation and only mm -hmm. subject to federal regulation. So let's just use Lawrence for an example. So they are subject to federal regulation. Correct. Okay. Yeah, but not state. So okay. say we go in Lawrence and Lawrence is a tribe and the tribal member lives in Lawrence. He can hunt in Lawrence without having a Kansas license because he's a tribal member and he's in the geographic boundaries of Lawrence. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. But if he goes outside Lawrence and tries to hunt in Topeka or Council Grove, he's got to get a Kansas hunting license. Gotcha. And then for us, it's the opposite. So we can hunt Topeka, Council Grove with the Kansas license. But if we want to hunt on in Lawrence, we'd have to get a Lawrence tribal license. Okay. And some tribes let, and they call them non-tribal members, let non-tribal members purchase a license. And they have their own state or they have their own game and fish commissions. And some tribes require you to have a tribal liaison or sponsor. So like Potawatomi and mm -hmm. up north of uh, Topeka, if you have a tribal sponsor, you can hunt there, but without one, you can't. Okay. If I go up to South Dakota and go to Lower Brule, which is on the Missouri River between Pierre and Chamberlain, I can just buy a license over the counter there. Hmm. It's just and as governed by the individual tribe. They decide those things? Yep. Yep. Because some of them probably just want the the economic benefit of it. Yeah, it's a good economic benefit. And some right. of those ones out West, they can sell sheep hunts for $80,000 a license. I mean, they can, wow. do, they can do really well. Sheep and big game, they, have, they all have trophy hunts. And a lot of them offer bison hunts too. So they can auction those off for, for a good amount as well. In your experience, how much of the culture have, have the tribes retained? I, I think they retain a lot. And I never know how much they miss. It's just like what I don't know, I would never know. But I think they retain a lot. And they're very devoted. And when I communicate and talk and hang out with and vibe with tribal members, they kind of look at the world a little differently than we do. And so when you try to categorize it, it doesn't always make sense. And like I told Ramsey, when I went up and I'll go up there again here at the end of next month to go do early goose season in South in North Dakota, they like you. They describe the the land features differently. Mm -hmm. They describe the way the birds move differently. They we we scout a little differently. I mean, it's just a different yeah. way of looking at the world. And I think that's why people share this have this romanticism about tribal cultures because they have a more uh, we we just imagine they have a more authentic view of the world than we do. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think they've retained a lot of that and their language is coming back more in different places. And I, That's I great. think they're, they're many of those tribes are very resilient in, in maintaining everything that got taken away from them. Do most of those tribal members that you interact with speak the original language here and here and there, yeah. not a lot, but the older ones usually do. And some of the younger ones do, there's like a gap, but the older ones usually had to learn that kind of forcefully 
because there, we had that whole schooling problem in the early 20th century too. So it's right. It's few and far between, but that's Where why they were I put forcing a, them to go to, to places to, like Shawnee mission here in Kansas city. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they were, uh, they were, I don't know how the logistics works. My perception was that they weren't forcing all children to go through those, but a good portion of the native children they were forcing to go through basically re-education. Yeah. And actually, if you really care, this, that recent Supreme Court decision last month, it's called Holland versus Brackeen. Justin Go Justice Gorsuch wrote a big opinion in there. It's Supreme Court dicta. So it's nothing's really more true than that about the whole child Indian removal act and the children moving for schooling. It's, it's a mm -hmm. pretty good, I'll send it to you. It's a pretty good synopsis of all of that. And it, he spells mm -hmm. it out and that's a Supreme court justice. So this isn't like your left news or your right news. This is like in right. the Supreme court. So it's, it's pretty impartial, but it's very scathing. So they just went back and, and basically looked at those, um, he, how it was being handled back then. And just what was, did something new come up there really on or, or so that was about, that case was about adoption and whether um, adopting whether the, so there's a statute called ICWA Indian Child Welfare Act and it gives preference to the tribe on where that placement of that child should be at and someone mm -hmm. said that's a race discrimination and it's not because Indian is a legal status not a race like, mm -hmm. I'm black you're white you have a race we're a race but it, Indian is a tribal member, which is their own sovereignty. So it's a political class. Okay. So it's separate. So categorizing someone as an Indian is, is, is not technically race-based. It's, it's political class. Right. So that's what the case was about. And okay. it's more nuanced too. Da, 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 da. But the, the Justice Gorsuch's opinion in there talks about the history of removing the children and putting them into mm -hmm. all these schools and the atrocities that happened at the schools and how that systematically you know, removed a bunch of their cultural identity and stuff. And it's just a great way of looking at it. That's impartial. You mm -hmm. know, everyone's always about, Oh, the news, this, the news, that, no, this right. is the Supreme court. This is, this is it. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Do you have any other thoughts or things that you want to share about your times on tribal lands? I would say, I would, I would try to inspire other people to go out there and do it. I think, there's some really good opportunities out there. It's good for their economic engines, but there's really good opportunities up in, especially up in the Dakotas and out in Montana. There's lots of wild game, lots of waterfowl opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, it can be fun and you get a, you get a license out there and you could have anywhere from a hundred thousand to a million acres access to. Wow. When you look at a core <laughs> lake at for 16,000 yeah. acres, it's like, well, if I'm really that mad about non-resident, I might as well just go up to North Dakota where I have a million acres of a res that I can hunt instead of worrying about <laughs> if I can hunt Saturday, Sunday, and Monday in Kansas, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't think anyone even knows that's a thing. I certainly had no idea. <laughs> How do they deal with the, with the limits? I imagine each tribe sets their Same. own limits. It's, this, it's just like a state where the federal government sets those limits and then okay. for like upland they have their own but they mostly usually they usually mirror the state number so the federal the federal sets the range of limits so like the like six Kansas ducks. could drop it to a three goose if they wanted but the maximum correct. they could do is okay gotcha yep. and they have to follow and since that's federal they have to follow those, those correct numbers. and the res is just like that so if you get the fed says six ducks you can only shoot six ducks on the res but the, the kicker on in south dakota is because it's its own because those reses are their own sovereign nation if you don't pull a waterfowl tag in south dakota you can still mm -hmm. waterfowl hunt in south dakota if you go to a res hmm. and how, how would you get in touch and and like how would you find the information if you were wanting to look into hunting on a res how I would you just google it because all of them usually have their own um state fish or their own wildlife webpage because usually uh -huh. the reservation will have its own webpage and there's usually a number for the game and parks and you just call them and Ask, hey, how do you uh, sign up for a license? And usually you just go there. Sometimes you have to do a money order. Sometimes you have to bring a check, but or sometimes you can buy them online. It's it's very similar to the state systems. They, oh. they almost mirror each other. It's just these are smaller geographic areas in the state of Kansas. I have never, ever heard anyone talk about that before. I know. Part of me is like, do I tell people about this? Because when I go out there, there is no one I have to compete with. But I, but part, the other part is like, if someone goes out to a res and has an amazing hunt, yeah. I hope they take time to 
meet some tribal members and understand the those people and, and what they stand for and why they live out there still and what they're doing. You go to yeah. Lower Brule and you have a banger hunt of mallards, geese, sharp tails, chickens, <laughs> and pheasants, and you come home with, I don't know, 100 plus pounds of birds from a weekend out there. Yeah. But you take some time and you appreciate that tribe and what they stand right. for too. Because you can have a banger hunt out there, but I want you also to show respect to those people that they let you hunt on their lands. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's well said. Um, well, if it's all right with you, I wanted I want to ask you to share one or two of your favorite hunting memories. But we're actually going to move that over to Patreon only, right. if that's okay. So we're going to close this down, and then Douglas and I are going to finish this conversation over on Patreon. And if you want to get in on that part of it, it's Patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting where I'm giving away a hunt where you can come and hunt with me sometime this year. So go check that out. So those of you that are here from Patreon, hang on because we are going to finish out this conversation. Those of you that are listening on either iTunes or Spotify or wherever you have just listened to another episode of the North American waterfowler podcast. And let me remind you to go and find Douglas on give your Instagram again. Uh, Shunka O'War, S-U-N-K-A underscore O underscore War, W-A-R. And once again, go to that Pheasants Forever YouTube and check out that Ripples um, video because I promise you, you are going to want to see that. So until next time, you have listened to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv